But above all, my brethren, do not swear either by heaven or by earth or with any other oath, but let your yes be yes and your no, no, lest you fall into judgment. Let's pray. Father, we come to you this evening. Lord, each of us made a commitment to come out here tonight. And Lord, as we learned last week, sometimes we'll just walk into situations. We've lost things and we're going to find other things. Lord, maybe some here are lost today and they're going to find you when they weren't looking for you. Maybe some came here for the wrong reasons. But Lord, I pray no matter what reason they're here, that you'd speak to our hearts, each and every one of us, God. We thank you for the power of your word to change lives. And we pray, Lord, that we will walk away changed tonight. Lord, as we conclude this awesome book of James, we thank you for it. And we pray, Lord, that it would resonate with us. Show us, Lord, how to be doers of the word and not just hearers tonight. We pray this in the name of Jesus. We all said... Amen. What is a curse? I'm not talking about a curse word, but I'm talking about, you know, you hear like witchcraft and someone places a curse on you. What is it? Someone raise your hand and you tell me. What is a curse? <laughs> Jeffrey's like, I'm a freshman and I want to be making sure I'm not being too. Yes, that's okay. You can, I know you have something to say, Jeffrey. Go ahead. Something bad that's put on you, okay, perhaps. Someone else. Yes, Eddie. A what? Do you say a vodka tonic? I still have no idea. Did you just place a curse on me? Lord. <laughs> what if I just died? You just said something, I just died. Who would take over? Jeffrey, you're in charge if I die. Okay. <laughs> shh, shh, shh. All right. I'm just going to sum it up for you. A curse is fated misfortune. Misfortune that, that befalls a person, and it seems like it's inescapable. No matter how hard you try, it's still going to end badly for you. A lot of people are superstitious. Some of you may not believe it, but you say it to me whenever I say, they're like, oh, you don't have a cover for this cell phone? And I'm like, no. And like, well, why not? And I'm like, I've never dropped my cell phone. And they'll say, oh, my gosh, you're going to drop it now because everyone's superstitious. I have still not never dropped, dropping? I've never dropped my cell phone. So booyah. I mean, it's possible I could drop it and it breaks, but I don't really care because then it's, you know, then people don't call me anymore and then I'm okay with that. But uh, who wants to listen to you anyway? I'm kidding. Um, but we're very superstitious, even if we don't believe it. And as Christians, we don't have to fear the power of any curse. Why? Because we have a greater power living inside of us that's greater than any curse that anyone could place on you. Any power of hell, any power of sin, the one who is able to conquer sin, conquer death, can conquer any curse that's placed on you. But if that's true, then why do some of us still live like we're under the curse of sin. If it's true that Jesus is powerful enough to conquer sin and death, 
Why do we still live as if we're under the curse of sin? And today, what we're going over today, as I entitle this, Reverse the Curse, we're going over something I call the curse of inconsistency. The curse of inconsistency. The inability to remain faithful to something or someone. And so James says in verse 12, uh, to not swear either by heaven or earth with any other oath, that your yes be yes and your no be no. And he mirrors the command of Jesus in Matthew 5, 35 through 37, where Jesus said, you have also heard that our ancestors were told, you must not break your vows. You must carry out the vows you made to the Lord. But I say, do not make any vows. Do not say by heaven because heaven is God's throne. And do not say by the earth because the earth is his footstool. And do not say by Jerusalem for Jerusalem is the city of the great king. I don't think any of you have said that before. By Jerusalem, I promise you, I vow. I don't think anyone said that. Do not even say by my head, for you cannot turn one hair white or black. Now, I know what some of you are thinking. You're like, oh, the Bible's so outdated. I mean, take a step into my hair studio, and we're going to totally give you a make. No, that's not what he's talking about, obviously. Stop being stupid. He says, just say a simple yes, I will, or no, I won't. Anything beyond this is from the evil one. The point that Jesus made is if you can't even control your life, don't drag heaven into this. Don't drag the name of God into your inability to remain faithful. He's not saying that you should never make an oath. He's not saying that you shouldn't ever promise anything. Because some people think that you can't use the word swear. Like, oh, you swear. And the Bible says not to swear. That's not what it's talking about. But back in the day when this was written and James wrote this and Jesus wrote this or said this, uh, the Hebrew idea was that you could use oaths as kind of like crossing fingers. And they would say it so often. They would make these oaths and vows and say, by Jerusalem I promise or by heaven I say. And they'll use that as a way of crossing fingers to go back on their promises. So these people were so inconsistent and they would lie all the time. Douglas Moo, a commentator, sums it up by saying, Our truthfulness should be so consistent and dependable that we need no oath to support it. A simple yes or no should suffice. I'm going to ask you a question. Are you known for such integrity in your life that you never have to make promises? Are you the type of person that never has to promise anyone anything? Never has to pinky promise? Never has to say or appeal to any other higher power because you're just such a consistent person. I think instead we find that today people are more unreliable than ever. More than ever, you're seeing people fall away from Jesus. More than ever, people are unable to keep their commitments. And partly, I think technology gives even more an opportunity to lie, to break commitments. A study was done in the Journal of Business Ethics in 2012, and it found that people are more likely to lie via text than any other form of communication. I think that's true. It's so easy to lie over a text. Why? Because you're not giving off any facial expressions, any cues in your voice that could hint that you're lying. You just send a text message. You say, no, I'm, I'm at school, mom. Really? You're at school? Oh, well, they texted me. It must be true. We feel like we're able to lie a little bit and we have more leeway because we're not giving off those expressions. More and more people are unreliable. And these are some observations that I think 
are true, you can test them for yourself. I got three of them. Ready? This is what's happened to commitment in our day. Number one, it's hard to find someone who doesn't flake. It's hard to find someone that doesn't flake. You know, me growing up in high school, trying to go on dates with all the hottest girls in youth group, it's very hard to get girls to go on one-on-one dates with me, right? You always have to do this group thing and trick them, and, and then you're like, you're finally going to get them alone. And they're like, is it okay if I bring so-and-so with me? I mean, I know you're like, you're supposed to hang out. Do you mind if my friend? No, totally fine. And inside you're like, you're dying, it's just, oh, my hopes and dreams. And then you feel like you have to cover it up when your friends ask you, so are you really going to, going to, going to go on that date? And you're like, well, it's not a date anymore. It is, it's a double date, but it's really, there's a third wheel coming along and you feel like you have to cover up for those things. So you have a lot of, I've had a lot of people flake out on me on dates and you almost assume that people are going to flake out after a while. Maybe it's not a date. Maybe it's just a friend that you just never seem to hang out with. You're like, yeah, let's hang out next week. Okay. And then next week comes and like, oh, I had something come up. I had my family over or something lame. And you're like, I know it's not your family. Or maybe uh, you have that friend that says, I don't have any money to hang out today. And then you say, I'll pay for you. And they'll say, oh, well, you know, I'm just tired. And you're just like, oh, you liar. That happens to me all the time. It's all based on how we feel. And the minute that there's a more important commitment to us, we're going to give up something that's less important. And you are less important than this other commitment that they've already made, TV or their favorite shows on. And it kind of makes you feel worthless inside. You're not that important, important that they're going to honor their commitments. Second observation is that we'll make vows in order to get our way. Maybe a friend finds out who you like. And oh my gosh, you got to do something because your friend also spreads out gossip like a virus to everyone that you know. And so you like, you're at their mercy. And you're like, I swear, I will do anything. Just please don't tell that person. Please don't tell anyone. Oh, I promise I won't tell anybody. Oh, really? I said that one person who tells another one person and then it just goes crazy and it's just sad. So we'll make these vows in order to get our own way. We'll try to control the situation by vowing something above ourselves. Jephthah was a man in the Bible, very interesting name, but he promised, he vowed to the Lord something ridiculous. He's known for the guy who made an irrational vow. He said, Lord, if you help me to get victory over this one army, he was a judge of Israel. If you allow me to get victory over this army, I vow to give you the first thing that comes out of my house, which is ridiculous. First of all, like what, what was he expecting to come out of his house? Like a donkey? It's like, oh, I'm donkey. I'm walking out of his house. It was his daughter. And he sacrificed his daughter because he needed to honor his vow to the Lord. Messed up. What also Jephthah didn't realize is that God was already for him. He didn't even have to promise. He didn't even have to make that vow because God was not going to be like, well, I'm going to forget my people Israel. But how many of us do that same thing with God? How many of us say, Lord, if you just make this girl like me, I promise I'll read my Bible every single day. And there's probably only three people that can relate with me when I pray that prayer. But still, we're in it together. <laughs> um, but maybe it's something less drastic. And you vow to the Lord and say, Lord, if you just give me this one thing, 
I will do whatever you want. I'll surrender my life to you. And God's like, you know I have your best interest in mind, right? Ecclesiastes chapter, four, uh, chapter 5 tells us, when you make a promise to God, don't delay in following through, for God takes no pleasure in fools. Maybe more seriously, you've made a vow, and I have. There's a, a, a point in my life where I was sick. I, ha- I thought I had hepatitis B. My doctor thought I did at least, and I was going to die. I really thought I was going to die. And some of you remember this, the period I was like gone from Ignite. It was like the only period in Ignite where I was gone because like I was, like I couldn't eat anything for a week. I lost 10 pounds and it was just like terrible. And I vowed to God, I was like, Lord, is this it? Am I really going to die? And I started making vows to the Lord and not realizing that God had my best interests in mind. I didn't have to make such a, a silly vow. Maybe it's deliverance from sin. And you say, Lord, if you just free me from the sin, I vow to do this or to do that. And you don't have to do that. The third observation is that we'll give up on commitment altogether. That's what the world's doing. In the world today, places like Mexico City, they're trying to solve the divorce problem by giving people two-year marriage contracts. Let's say you'll be married for two years, and after two years, you can choose to renew your vows or you can split apart and you don't call it a divorce. That's the world we live in. Because they can't imagine people actually committing their lives to each other. They can't actually imagine someone making a vow and keeping it. If we break them all the time, the only solution must be to give up on them altogether. And in the Christian life, what happens is people say, well, I always fail when I take a Bible reading schedule. I always fail when I say I'm going to read the Bible every day, so I'm just not going to make a commitment to read. And I'll read when I feel like it. I'm not going to make a commitment to pray or hold my friend accountable for his sin because I always fail anyway. I'm not good on keeping commitments, so maybe we just shouldn't make commitments so we don't fail. And you see, this is what happens. We're making commitments out of uh, the reason why we make commitments is so that we feel good. And we'll only make the commitments that makes us feel good in the moment. And the minute it doesn't, we'll feel like we can break them. Ultimately, people aren't committed to others and Christians aren't committed to God. This past Monday, my grandfather had his funeral. He passed away a couple months ago and I went to D.C. And we held a funeral for him and he got a a 21-gun salute. It was a military funeral and he had um, the high honors. He got the Purple Heart and he was a prisoner of war. And people have looked at my grandfather's generation, he fought in World War II, as the greatest generation that society has ever produced. Why is that? Well, my grandfather, he actually has a ridiculous story. I didn't even know it until three years ago. But uh, some of you may know this. But my grandfather told me this story. He said he was going into Germany, and they, they told him there was going to be this easy town to take control of, and they'd be home for Thanksgiving dinner. It was not going to be a big deal in World War II. So he goes over there and they find out that the Germans got wind that they were going to be in that city. So the Germans were ready for them and started attacking them and ambushed them as soon as they got there. So his sergeant told him, my grandfather, to go run back to base and get help. So he runs and as he's running, two or three times shells landed next to him and exploded, throwing him up into the air and brought him down. That's where he got his purple heart. He kept on running two or three times up into the air, and he finally ran back to base. Uh, But when he got back to base, everyone was already captured. 
And so he got sent into a camp as well. So they got put on these trucks, and they're called 40 and 8s, which means 40 men to 8 horses. But they would stick about 200 men to 8 horses, and you would be so tightly uh, stuck in there that you couldn't even sit down. So he's brought back to this, this prison camp, and he's chopping down trees, doing this labor and stuff, and they were all Jews except one Asian, so they knew what their fate was going to be. So my grandfather took the opportunity, saw a motorcycle with a flat tire, and he took that motorcycle and just drove off on a cobblestone road and escaped from um, the Germans. So he escaped, and he didn't just escape and, and leave, but he went back to base, got all of his friends together, got on a truck, packed so many people in a truck that they had to be outside of the truck just hanging on with a machine gun in his hand and grabbing the other guy's arm and just going back to rescue everyone else, and they did. Pretty amazing story. Why did I share that with you? They were called the, the greatest generation, not because they, they didn't fight for fame or glory. They fought because they, they knew it was right. They fought for morals, and not because they wanted anything for themselves. They were committed to their children, to their families, to their country, regardless of how they personally felt. In contrast, our generation is all about entitlement. What's in it for me? What makes me happy? We're not committed to God or each other. And what I want to venture and say to you tonight is, if there can be a generation birthed out of commitment to others, that can be called great. How great could be the generation that's committed to the Lord Jesus Christ? If a generation can be so committed to their children, to just humans, and not even be Christian and be called great, how great of an impact could our generation have if we were committed to the Lord? I'm going to give you four short reasons why we are to commit to the Lord. Number one, it reflects the nature of God. When we commit to the Lord and to each other, it reflects God's nature. God is the great I am. He said in Exodus, this is my name forever and ever. It's not going to change. I am that I am. I am your shield. I am your banner. I am your protection. It's impossible for the I am to not be. In other words, God is the ultimate objective truth. Objective meaning mind independence. That's just a little teaser right there because I know most of you didn't know what I said. But if objective reality is things outside of the mind, subjectivity is things within a mind, God is the ultimate reality. He doesn't change whether you believe in him or not, whether you think he's faithful or not, he's going to remain faithful. You might have doubts, but that doesn't change the character of God. Secondly, God is committed to you. Romans 8, 38 through 39 beautifully says, For I am persuaded that neither death nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any create, other created thing shall be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Jesus Christ our Lord. The Holy Spirit is your wedding ring as a person. He's your seal of promise that guarantees if you have the Holy Spirit inside of you, you are convicted when you sin against God. You are convicted when you don't speak out and evangelize. The Holy Spirit, the evidence inside of your heart is the promise that you're going to receive eternal life. Regardless if you feel like it or not. Regardless if you believe it or not. If you trust in the Lord, 
he's committed to you and he's willing to chase after us even when we've fallen away from him. Thirdly, God calls us not to be fickle, but to be resolute. He says in uh, Matthew 12, whoever is not with me is against me and whoever does not gather with me scatters. If you remember when I quoted Jesus giving this similar exhortation that James does, he says anything Anything beyond this, anything beyond those vows is from who? The evil one. What does that mean? When we make vows and we try to appeal to someone more than ourselves and we're double-sided in our nature, we're reflecting not the nature of God, but the nature of Satan. Satan is the great deceiver. All he does is lie. He commits and he flakes. He says, you will receive. If you just take a bite of this fruit, you will be like God. Did he uphold his commitment? No, no, he didn't. Satan just wants to deceive you. Says, you can get gratification now and it's going to last. But will it last? No. And God says, if you wait, gratification is to come. Fourthly and lastly, lest you fall into judgment. In other words, if we don't commit, you'll be judged for what you say. Jesus condemned lip service. Just kind of mouthing off things. I'm going to commit to you, Lord. I'm going to be in youth group, Lord. I'll be there. Instead, he called for a committed lifestyle. Not lip service, but a committed lifestyle. But do we have that? Do we have a lifestyle of commitment? Do we mirror that? Look at me in verse 13. As we move on. It says, Is anyone among you suffering? Let him pray. How many of us commit to pray for those that are suffering? When we're struggling, when people are hurting, do we pray? We just feel bad. It always bothers me when people say, you're in my thoughts and in my prayers. Right? When they say, I'm just sending good vibes toward you. But there's nothing like the prayer that comes and changes people's lives. Continues on. Is anyone cheerful? Let him sing psalms. Is anyone among you sick? Let him call for the elders of the church and let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer of faith will save the sick. And the Lord will raise him up. And if he has committed sins, he will be forgiven. Now that's just really weird to read about because it seems to imply that if you have this prayer of faith, it doesn't matter of the circumstances, you will be healed. First of all, we're called to commit our sufferings and our sicknesses to the Lord and not just keep them to ourselves and bring them before each other, the elders of the church, to be the pastors and it can be each other, praying for one another. And why does it say the prayer of faith will heal the sick? I'll just give you the shortcut answer because we don't have a lot of time. And that is this prayer of faith is something given by God. You can't work it up. It's a gift of healing that happens when God allows it and when he wills. The prayer of faith doesn't go from apart from the God of the faith. And so when you have this prayer of faith, it's something where you're, you're convinced that beyond a shadow of the doubt that this person will be healed. And you can't conjure it up. It's a gift of faith that God gives to certain people at certain times to accomplish his will, to accomplish his will and you will be healed in those times. But don't neglect it as if God isn't into... Uh, into healing people because he is. It says, confess your trespasses to one another and pray for one another 
that you may be healed. The effective fervent prayer of a righteous man avails much. Here I think a lot of people just don't feel like prayer does anything. Right? You pray, you pray, you commit to pray, Lord, do this or heal that person or save that person. And just nothing happens. So why even bother praying? And so you give up that commitment to pray. Many of us start prayer journals and say, I'm going to pray for this person every single night. And when we're failing in our commitments, we just kind of give up altogether and say, well, I guess since I failed so many times, it's always going to be that way. That's why I said it's a curse. You just always feel it like it's going to happen, no matter how hard you try. But realize he says, the righteous, the effective fervent prayer of a righteous man avails much. I've had a friend that I prayed for for seven years to come to know Jesus. And he did after seven years of praying every single night. Some people tell you that you shouldn't pray more, uh, a prayer more than once. Or make sure it's not a ritualistic thing. But if it's a fervent prayer, it's going to be effective. If it's a prayer you continually bring before the Lord, what did the Bible say? It says, keep on knocking, keep on asking, and it will be given to you. The unrighteous judge who, who says, but because of her nagging, her constant nagging, I will, heal, I will hear her case. Elijah was a man with a nature like ours and prayed earnestly that it would not rain, and it did not rain on the land for three years and six months. And he prayed again. And the heaven gave rain and the earth produced its fruits. This is kind of odd for the Hebrews to hear this because Elijah is someone they really looked up to. They said Elijah is like the coming, uh, the second coming. And they were looking forward to at Passover, Elijah to come. They, they saw him as one who is mightily used by the Lord. And, and what James says is Elijah was a man like, with a nature like ours. All he did was pray. You want to see God change lives? Why don't you commit to praying for those that are hurting? Why don't you commit to praying for your future? Say, Lord, I don't know what you have in the future for me, but I'm going to commit to pray. Some of you single guys here and single ladies, do you commit to praying for your future husband or wife? And say, I might not even know who they are, but I'm, commit, I'm going to commit to praying for them. Lastly, in verse 19, he closes out by saying, Brethren, if anyone among you wanders from the truth... And someone turns him back, let him know that he who turns a sinner from the error of his way will save a soul from death and cover a multitude of sins. Now he uses this funny imagery here. He says wanders like the, the Greek word here is celestial wandering. Like you're just spacing out and you're just kind of like that person that just, where's that person? Oh, he's orbiting the moon. Oh, he's back. He's back in church. Oh, he's left church. Oh, he's in youth group. He's not there anymore. These people that constantly float in and float out. What do you do about these people? Well, it says that someone is able to turn them back. You have the power through Jesus to bring these people back to himself. He wants to use you. Don't ever think that because they've heard the same arguments or they've heard you talk to them and, and you've exhorted them countless times that they're just not going to hear you anymore. God might use you to change that person's life. And when you do, let that person know that he who turns a sinner from the air of his way will save a soul from death and cover a multitude of sins. But realize what he says here. Brethren, if anyone among you, all of you here, know of someone that's wandered away from this group here. We're not talking about people outside of the church. We're talking about people inside the church. 
So how can we reverse this curse? It just seems like no matter how many youth group generations you go through, someone is always leaving. Someone is always backsliding. We're talking about commitment this whole time, but maybe we, we haven't really discussed commitment to each other and commitment to God. Commitment to the church. How can we reverse that curse? I think when we observe that we have unhealthy routines in our life, we make commitments to break them. When you're eating food that's unhealthy for you, you're just like, all right, no more nachos. When you're trying to get on an exercise regimen, you say, I'm just going to work out every single day. And you make these commitments and you hope you don't break them. Alistair Begg had a quote and he said, as with so many exercise programs, people are often motivated by guilt to make staggering commitments, which they quickly discover they are unable or unwilling to sustain. Our reading commitments get messed up. Our prayer commitments get lost. We lose fellowship with believers. How can we reverse the curse? What makes it worse is the longer you stay out of fellowship with believers, the longer you stay out of the word, the harder it is to get back in it. When someone walks away from God, it's that much harder to get back with God. Why? Because it's just awkward because you feel like, what if this person's judging me? What are they going to think about me? What will people think? And then you make more promises. No, but this time I'm really going to make it right. This time I'm going to confess my sins. This time I'm going to make it right. This time I'm going to stop looking at porn. This time I'm going to stop doing drugs. I'm going to make a commitment. I'm going to keep it. What's the problem? How do you reverse the curse? The power of Jesus Christ to change lives. That's the only way. The only way to keep commitments is through the power of the Holy Spirit. Apart from the Holy Spirit, you can do nothing. You can commit all you want. You're just, you're just going to find your life inconsistent with your words. And God's going to hold you responsible for those words. He's going to hold you responsible for every single idle word that you speak, that you say, I'm coming back this time. I'm going to read my Bible this time. Apart from the Holy Spirit, you can't even do that. Why do we think we can? Why do we think we can cover our failures when Jesus says, I already covered your failures. Just come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden with your own guilt, your own burdens, your own stupid commitments that you keep on breaking. Give it to me. My load is easy and my yoke is light. My yoke is easy and my burden is light. Reverse of that. You see, and to conclude all of this today, we live in an age where people have loose plans. They like to be flexible, right? They don't want to be tied down to anything. Yeah, you know, I have some things to do that night, but I can push it back. I can wait till later. I told that person I'd hang out with them, but you're more important than them. You know, I said I'd be at youth group, but I go to youth group every week. So what's the big deal if I miss a week here or miss a week there or miss a year here or a year there? God is looking for a man or woman who's absolutely committed to living for him, one with one purpose, one mind, one that has the dedication that some of you take towards schoolwork, some of you take towards sports, and you're staying up late studying, you're staying up late uh, exercising, and you're so committed to that one thing. Why? Because you want to receive a prize. You want the best grades in your class. You want to be the most popular kid in your school. You want to look the most healthy among all your friends. You want to get the most girls. You want to do all these things 
for things that perish. And the Bible says all these people are striving for things that perish, but we have a prize that does not perish. Why don't we act like it? Don't you know that we all run a race to receive a prize? Our prize doesn't perish. It doesn't fade away. Where's that dedication? A lot of us don't have it. What will it take? What will it take for a person to say, I don't care what it takes in my life. I'm going to lay it down because I know God is worth it. I know God is committed to me. I don't care how it looks. I don't care if I'm the only ones approaching God. I'm, if I'm the only one surrendering myself to God because it's worth it. This kind of commitment means that you'll pray for others. You'll read your Bible regardless of how you feel. Why? Because you're committed to God. You'll be at church regardless of circumstances. Why? Because you're committed to other people and committed to the Savior behind the people. Who knows if the greatest generation is yet to come. You freshmen here, you got four years to make a commitment. To say, Lord, I'm in this youth group, not because this youth group's special, not because there's anything particular about this that makes it good, besides the God that says, if there are people committed to me, the eyes of the Lord search to and fro throughout the whole earth. Why? To show himself strong on behalf of those whose heart is what? Anyone know it? What's the word? Heart is what? Anyone? Maybe this is the first time you're hearing it. God wants to show himself strong on behalf of those whose hearts is loyal to him. You think God's just going to see a commitment and be like, oh, that was nice. It's not that you're trying so hard, but I'm not going to do anything about it. Think about what God can do with a generation of people that say, I'm going to be there whenever people need me, whenever my God needs me, because I'm committed to his service and committed to the future that God has for me. 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 20. I'll leave you with this. It says, for all the promises of God in him are yes and in him, amen, to the glory of God through us. God loves you so much. Everyone here, he loves you so much. Outgoing seniors, you're leaving. You're going to college soon. God loves you so much. And all of his promises are not a maybe. When he says, I love you, it's not a maybe. It's a yes and amen. You can read every single promise in the Bible. You know what this is? This is the code to the entire Bible for you to look at the Old Testament and wonder, that promise is for Israel. How do I know that applies to me? Because all of God's promises are yes and amen to the glory of God through his people, us. That's exciting. It's pretty awesome. How many of us are going to commit? How many of us are going to stay in it even when we're tired, even when we're weary, even when we're bored. Why? Because we know if we don't lose heart, God has something for us. Let's pray.